Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season 8 of Game of Thrones begins this Sunday, which means Binge Mode Game of Thrones makes its long-awaited return, with your resident experts Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion guiding you through each episode. And to get your fix every Sunday night, Chris Ryan joins Mallory and Jason on Talk the Thrones, a Twitter after show recapping each episode throughout the season. So make sure you check out the Binge Mode podcast on Apple or Spotify, Talk the Thrones on Twitter, and for even more Thrones coverage, you can head to theringer.com. Hello, and welcome to Game of Thrones Precapables, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. You heard that right. That's precapables, not recapables. We made up a word because this is the podcast where we preview and predict and prognosticate all about the Game of Thrones episode to come. Today, we're kicking off this pod by breaking down our favorite theories, questions, and expectations for season eight episode one of the show i'm zach cram from the ringer and joining me on the slow shuffle south of the wall i hope he's found a comfortable dead horse to ride it's riley mcatee hello what's up you excited yes i'm excited i'm ready for the new season ready for the final season let's do it First up is a segment we're going to call Next on Game of Thrones. Now, normally here's where we break down the little teaser trailer for the upcoming episode, maybe discuss what its title means, but HBO hasn't given us those goodies for this one yet. We can still engage in plenty of theorizing, though, by looking at past precedent in the previous seven season premieres. So as we head into the eighth and final season premiere, Riley, how would you characterize the trend of what we've seen in episode ones thus far? It's pretty well known that the premiere episode of Game of Thrones every season is usually kind of a table setter, kind of just introduces everything that's going to play a factor in the season to come. You know, we get a lot of new characters that come in. We also get a lot of old characters that will be moving around. Danny, this is very true for. She'll be moving to Astapor, to Marine, heading toward Viastoth Rock. In the last season, she arrived on Dragonstone at the end of the first episode. So often you get characters, you know, arriving in a place where they'll then spend the majority of the season or at least have a lot of action, a lot of different things happen there that season. We can kind of expect this episode to do some of those same things, to hold true to some of those same tenets where it'll be setting up what will happen in season eight. And I think that's a perfect jumping off point to one of the places we'll probably visit in the season eight premiere, which is King's Landing, where we're not totally sure how many new characters will appear. It kind of seems like the show is sort of overstuffed with characters. And if anything, they're going to be cut down at this point. But we know of at least one new one this season, and that is Harry Strickland, the commander of the Golden Company last mentioned at the end of season seven. So Riley, what do we know about Harry Strickland, who, at least from the trailer we saw uh, last month, is definitely going to be making an appearance early this season? Yeah, I would reckon that he'll show up in King's Landing in this first episode, along with Euron. In the books, we're introduced to him already. They call him Rotund. He's a little bit of a coward, too. He's kind of just like battle-weary. He doesn't really want to fight anymore. I don't really think that'll be his character in season eight. I actually think that they'll write him a little differently and he might be more of like a badass um, kind of to pair with Euron and give Cersei's side a little more firepower and a little more danger to them. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I tend to agree with you just because 
of the way they built up the Golden Company, it seemed like that moment in the season seven finale when Cersei revealed her treachery to Jamie, essentially, Jamie thinking that she was going to hold true to her promise and have a truce with John and Danny, help fight the walkers. But instead, she revealed that she had sent Euron to Essos to recruit these sellswords. They were really built up as this premier fighting force, and they are. They are the sellsword service in Essos that is reputed to have never broken a contract. They're the best ones, 20,000 strong. They have uh, they have elephants, which Cersei mentions. So I'm hoping we get yeah. some elephant action, a la Lord of the Rings, maybe. But I'm not sure if they will be fighting necessarily in this episode. I think it would probably be a little early for that. I think the Golden Company is going to play a pretty pivotal role this season because we've been focusing so much on the White Walkers versus John and Danny and everyone else massing at Winterfell. But we can't forget there's still this threat to the South. It's still a, a three-pronged battle. And this is basically Cersei's army now ever since the loot train attack decimated her forces. That's right, yeah. And, you know, we know that they never break a contract, but we can't say the same about Euron Greyjoy, you know. The Iron Islanders love to pay the iron price, not the gold price, so... You never know if he's going to turn on Cersei or something there will happen, but I don't know if that would happen this episode, but I do think that this will set up, you know, the future of the conflict in the South. I agree, and I would guess we spend most most of the time in the North in this episode because that seems to be yeah. where most of the characters are headed. Most of the characters we care about, sort of all the reunions we're going to see. The first is one we saw in you know set photos in the teaser where Sansa is welcoming John back to Winterfell and Danny to Winterfell for the first time. What can we sort of expect from this mass force arriving at Winterfell? The thing that we got to remember is that when John and Danny arrive in Winterfell, it's not going to be all like rainbows and sunshine and flowers. It's going to be complicated. Daenerys's father burned Rickard Stark, who was Ned's father, you know, Brandon Stark, who would be John's uncle, Ned's brother, um, way back preceding Robert's Rebellion. That's really like one of the things that really led to Robert's Rebellion. And they also think that Rhaegar Targaryen kidnapped and raped Lyanna Stark. So the Northerners, the Northern Lords, really are going to have no love for the Targaryens. You know, as they say in season one, they bent the knee to the dragons. Well, the dragons are no more. Daenerys might have dragons at her back, but that doesn't mean they're going to like her. It doesn't mean they're going to respect her. So this is going to be, you know, really tense and awkward and it's going to take a lot of smoothing over. It's going to be weird. John's going to have to convince everybody that even though he's bent the knee, things are still cool. They should still follow him. He's still king of the North. So I think there's going to be a lot of conversations and a lot of kind of politicking happening where it'll be delicate. It'll be like a fragile situation. What Tyrion once said is a uh, history happening because great men and women are having conversations in great halls. And yeah. that's probably what we're going to see this episode. I am curious to see what sort of happens with the unfamiliar aspects of it. Danny went north of the wall in season seven, the furthest north she had ever been. So how's she going to handle being in a northern castle, which even throughout history, the Targaryens had rarely ventured that far north. That's how right. are the how are the northern lords going to react to seeing dragons? We saw that great shot of Arya in the trailer, and she, of course, is enthused by it, but what's everyone else going to think, uh, given the caution and hesitance with which they viewed the Targaryens for a couple of generations now. Do you think that with some of this sort of complexity that you've talked about, would you expect there to be mediators on either side? Because we have, you know, there are some new characters, Danny and Sansa have never met each other, but we also have some characters who have 
the ability to be go-betweens. Yeah, I think that we'll we'll get to this a little later, but Tyrion and Sansa might be really key. Obviously, they were previously married. They kind of know each other. Their relationship has probably changed a lot since Sansa was basically a girl when they were married. Tyrion was being forced into the marriage. But they kind of both can be level-headed and can kind of talk this out. It really depends on how Sansa acts in terms of is she going to see John coming back and bent the knee and be like, okay, you know, we still have to rally around the greater cause here. We have to like keep focus or, you know, will she be suspicious? It, it You kind of can't help but be suspicious. I mean, imagine if somebody comes into your home, even if they're on your side, they basically have dragons, a weapon like nothing else. And they have all of this power. Um, it's going to be tough considering that stuff that the Mad King did in terms of killing Starks the North remembers, man. The North remembers. So it's going to be a weird situation. The North remembers, but if you think they're going to be suspicious of Danny, a character they're going to be even more rightly suspicious of is Jamie Lannister, last seen yeah. leaving Cersei, even though she said, nobody leaves me, and he was riding north, perhaps to be with Brienne, perhaps to just join the broader fight uh, to fight for the living. He has a history at Winterfell. At Winterfell, he pushed Bran out of a tower. Do you think that there's going to be strife between those characters or has Bran kind of you know, shuffled off that mortal veil and not really care anymore? I figure that Bran, who can see everything, will see that Jamie's changed, can see that his intentions are true. They'll also have, uh, I believe, Tyrion you know, can vouch for his brother. I believe Brienne can vouch for the Kingslayer. So they'll have people who say, hey, man, you know, Jamie's for real. He's also going to show up there with no army at his back. So if he were coming to do anything treacherous, you know, you think you'd come with a few soldiers. And it's also true that John, you know, invited everybody north, said, hey, come fight with us. So when Jamie shows up alone and says, you know, Cersei's going to betray you, but I'm here, you kind of can't logically see any other reason than he's being honest. So I think that certainly characters like Sansa and Arya will be suspicious uh, and they have a right to be. But I do think that eventually it'll get smoothed over. And I'm kind of excited for that. I think as fascinating as Jamie's character arc has gone over the seven seasons we've seen, so from guy who literally pushes a child out of the tower to someone we're rooting for who we consider more on the heroic side, I think he was at his best when he was in enemy territory, when he was a prisoner of the Starks, when he was bonding yeah. with Brienne during their adventures through the Riverlands. I think that's when his character was at its most compelling. So I'm excited to see him interacting with both familiar and unfamiliar faces and having to prove himself. He has that great conversation too with John in season one where he basically makes fun of the Night's Watch and is like, go have a good time, bastard. Like, it's only for life. Not for life for John. Well, for life. And then you got a second one. Uh, you know, and John and Jamie, they did technically see each other at the Dragon Pit in season seven, but they didn't really have a conversation. It'll be really interesting to see them return. You know, would John be like, hey man, like, you know, you were kind of a dick to me. I think that's what makes this show so great is these wrinkles. You know, Jamie has really weird relationships with all of these characters that he's going north to see, but his intentions are true and he does want to fight with them. And I think ultimately they'll come around and say, hey, yeah, we will work with this guy. One thing we're sure to see a lot in this episode is character reunions. There are too many to get out of the way just in episode one. I know you've written a piece ranking a ton of different potential reunions. Mallory and Jason have talked about this a lot on Binge Mode. Is there one you're most excited for this season in episode one? I mean, it, it has to be Arya John. It has to be Arya John. They were best friends, you know, the, the ultimate like older brother, little sister relationship. He gives her needle. 
really sets her on the path that she's been on in life. And I just cannot wait to see them together again. I really think both of them have been so moody for the last few seasons that I really hope when we get them together again, that it's just pure joy and really brings back a remembrance of what it is that these people are fighting for in the first place. Especially because Arya and Sansa had that really nice moment on the battlements at Winterfell after they killed Littlefinger at the end of season seven, realizing the importance of sticking together as a family. So I really wonder how that dynamic will play out with John's potential parent reveal. And I think that's probably the biggest question about episode one is, will Bran and Sam tell John who his parents truly are? Because I think that's both one of the central questions of this entire show in terms of like character and literal, like who deserves to sit on the Iron Throne, but also could have really interesting effects given what happened at the end of season seven, where John bent the knee to Danny. Danny has stated outright that the Iron Throne she believes is her birthright And now there's a complication because the man she loves, the man she now believes is fighting on her side, technically might have a better claim to the throne than her. And they're together together and they're related too, which will be real weird. Probably real weird for John, not super weird for Danny, who probably expected this as a Targaryen. But, (laughs) you know, there's just that wrinkle too, just throwing it out there. Yeah, I mean, they'll definitely, you know, we know that John will find out. Obviously, they're going to tell him. uh, Brandon Sam said at the end of season seven that they have to tell him yes to know the truth. Uh, I, I think it'll happen in this episode. What do you think? I'm not sure. Just because it seems like such a big thing to get out of the way, I wonder if this will kind of be a cloud that hangs over the entire season. And I don't know necessarily why that would happen. Remember, all the way back in season one, right? John departs for the, the wall, Ned departs for King's Landing, and Ned tells him, next time we're together... I'll tell you who your mother is. Well, obviously that didn't happen because Ned died. And then they kind of spread it out. And then you see part of the Tower of Joy scene early in season six, but not the rest. Then you see the end of the Tower of Joy scene at the end of season six. But you don't learn the next step that Rhaegar and Lyanna were actually married, that John is actually trueborn and the true heir of the Seven Kingdoms. That his name is Aegon. You don't learn that until the end of season seven. So I think there's a bit of an issue with just expecting them to come out with it right away. I'm not sure why they wouldn't, but I'm not so convinced either. I I feel like it could be something that happens toward the end of the episode, and then maybe you deal with the fallout and the aftermath and who else needs to know in episode two. It's just so condensed. We know the Battle of Winterfell is at episode three, so I think a lot of the thorniness of Jon's parentage reveal has to have been untangled by that episode. So I feel like, you know, we'll, we'll get it Early. It might not be the first thing, but it also doesn't seem like Brandon and Sam would be like, hey, John, like, you know, wow, nice to see you again. And then they hold their tongues. I think they know that they probably have to spill the beans sooner rather than later. Now, you mentioned that we, we either know or at least we assume that we know that the Battle of Winterfell, the big battle they've been building toward, will come in episode three this season. And that's for two reasons. First, it's because that is the first of the really long episodes in season eight. Uh, But this episode, episode one, is only 54 minutes. That's the shortest of the season, which helps support the idea that it's going to be more of a table-setting episode. We also believe that episode three is going to be the Battle of Winterfell because of who's directing that episode. Miguel Sapochnik is directing that episode. He did such episodes as Hard Home and Battle of the Bastards. Episode one is being directed by David Nutter, and David Nutter has directed some pretty impactful episodes in the past. He directed The Reigns of Castamere, which was The Red Wedding. 
In season five, he directed The Dance of Dragons, which is when Shireen burned and Danny left Marine on Drogon. He also directed episode 10 in season five, Mother's Mercy, which is when John is stabbed by his Night's Watch brothers. What do you think his selection for episode one, his first ever premiere, means for what could be in store? Yeah, it's really interesting that he hasn't ever done a premiere episode before. Um, he did... He did give us a few breadcrumbs, a few clues. In November 2018, he did a Reddit AMA, and of course, people asked him a ton of questions about Game of Thrones, and he was kind of able to hint at things, even if he couldn't outright answer stuff. One thing that really stuck with me is that someone asked him about the premiere episode, and he said, you know, yeah, I've never directed a premiere before, but he highlighted how important it is. These are his words, quote, it's really important to make a splash. And he continued by saying, you have to entertain. That's what's most important. And I think that's really interesting because I would say that most of the premiere episodes of Game of Thrones seasons haven't really made a splash. They might have had a few key moments or been kind of cool, but they're not like big. They're not certainly like The Red Wedding or Shireen's Burning or John's Death. So I think that this episode, especially when we're dealing with a season that only has six episodes, will have something bigger in it than being just people arriving places and having conversations. There's going to be more to it than that. Yeah. And I think recent season premieres have been a little bit more frenetic than the season premieres from earlier in the show. Like in season four, you got the action scene in the premiere of Arya and Hound battling uh, the Lannister folks over the chicken in the inn, right? You got some violence in Marine in season five and six premieres. So I think there's a possibility that there's more of a skirmish this episode, not a full-fledged battle. One group we basically haven't mentioned yet, a group that's been almost absent from all of the promotional material, is the White Walkers. We have no idea where their destination was after they mowed through the wall at the end of season seven. I have no idea. I don't expect them to arrive in Winterfell in this episode, but I could see them waylaying some group somewhere. Maybe they hit Castle Black, and that's why Dolores Ed has to retreat to Winterfell. Yeah, I agree entirely. I mean, it feels like you'd have them have some sort of appetizer to the Winterfell battle. The only place that viewers are really familiar with that's north of Winterfell is Castle Black, and it would just make a lot of sense if they went there and knocked it out. Perhaps that's like the end of this episode. Perhaps that's something I could see them saving it to episode two, but maybe not. Um, But it totally makes sense to me that that's where they head next. Now that we've broken down sort of the broad strokes of what this episode might be is the theory of the week. The theory of the week we're going to talk about this week is basically all of the theories surrounding the Crypts of Winterfell. The Crypts have been heavily featured in a lot of the promotional material, the teasers, the posters leading up to this season. But before we head into that, Riley, do you want to give a general overview of what we know about the Crypts? Yeah, so the Crypts are really interesting because of how much we've seen them. Uh, We also know that they are like one of the most ancient structures basically in the north, perhaps in all of Westeros. They were built under the first keep, which is where Bran the Builder first started building Winterfell right after the Long Night. So this is 8,000 or 6,000 years old, depending on the timeline you're looking at. Really about as old as you get in this world. It's basically as old as the wall. And they are vast. They are incredibly vast. If the, you know, if the crypts are thousands and thousands of years old and every Lord of Winter or every Warden of the North has been buried there, then they have to be huge. They're gigantic. And they say in the books that there are levels that aren't even accessible anymore that have collapsed. But also there might be further treats down there, further elements that could either help the heroes against the walkers or actually help the walkers against the heroes. So the first one I'm going to give to you and tell me if you believe this evidence 
is that they're actually dragon eggs buried in the crypts. The evidence for this comes from the World of Ice and Fire, which is the encyclopedic tome that George R. R. Martin and a couple co-writers put together. And it says that according to an old-time court jester named Mushroom, which is a very Game of Thrones phrase, a dragon named Vermax laid eggs at Winterfell when his rider, Prince Jaceris, met with the Starks to form an alliance during the Targaryen Civil War, also known as the Dance of Dragons. Essentially, the Targaryens flew north to curry favor with the Starks, had a dragon there, and the dragon laid eggs. And this is compelling because while there are no other known instances of Vermax laying an egg, the alliance with the Starks was a success. So it's reasonable to assume that part of their treaty, part of their agreement, was that a cache of dragon eggs be secretly stored at Winterfell. I think that it's it might be a little bit more likely in the books than in the show. Obviously, it hasn't been discussed in the show. The main thing is that dragons are very fickle about their riders. You don't have to be a Targaryen to ride a dragon, but it helps a lot. It's very, very rare for somebody to ride a dragon who isn't a Targaryen or doesn't have some kind of Valyrian blood in them. How much are dragon eggs really worth to Starks, who not only don't have Valyrian blood, they have like the blood of the first men. They're like as far from dragons as you can get. And then the other thing is just from a show perspective, if there are dragon eggs down there, there is not enough time left, even with the liberal way that the show deals with time now post season seven, there's not enough time for these dragon eggs to hatch and grow and be any use one way or the other, right? Like if they're down there, what happens to them? Are they just kind of like these priceless stones, sort of the way that Daenerys had in season one before her eggs hatched? And if they do hatch, then they're baby dragons that you just have to look after and take care of. So I'm not really sure what this would add to the show if it were true. I thought you might say that, especially the note about what matters in terms of time. So that leads to the second theory I want to propose. And this is forget about the eggs, forget about hatching, forget about dragons growing. Just there's there's a dragon beneath Winterfell. There's known hot springs that heat Winterfell. And some people believe that it's just magic, that it's just a result of geography. But other people believe that it's because there's an actual live dragon that sleeps beneath the castle. What do you think about the idea that there's an actual live dragon that heats Winterfell and could break free and help against the walkers? All right, I'm a little skeptical of this one too. Uh, sorry to be, you know, the Debbie Downer here, but a dragon's got to eat, man. That we, We've established that with Drogon who went, you know, and killed a bunch of sheep and became a whole problem. I don't think that even considering how vast these crypts are, that there are enough, like, mice and vermin down there for a dragon to live. And for how long? Two? Hundreds of years? Thousands of years? It just doesn't seem that likely to me. All right. So you're going to poo-poo my ideas. Let's see if you have anything better to bring to the table. Uh, Okay. So one theory is called the Great Other Theory. This one is sort of... um, slightly crackpot, a little a little wild, but let's go with it. That's a good start. Uh, you know, hey man, every good theory has to be a little bit completely bonkers. So this is called the great other theory because it's the idea that in the Lord of Light religion, sort of the opposite God to the Lord of Light is the great other or like the darkness basically. And the idea is that that also relates to winter and that winter fell is where winter literally fell during the long night that the castle wasn't just built there because some hot springs were there it was actually built there because that's where the long night ended and that brand the builder built winterfell and built the crypts to keep this darkness this great other contained somehow down there locked away basically 
there's some evidence for this. You know, we don't know why Winterfell is called Winterfell, which is odd because most other locations we know. We know why King's Landing is called King's Landing. It's because Aegon landed there. Harren Hall is called Harren Hall because it's built by Harren. Dragonstone, it's literally the stony island where dragons landed. Casterly Rock is where the Casterlies built a castle on a rock. Why is Winterfell called Winterfell? We don't know. I think it could be because winter literally fell there. So then the idea is there's certain other evidence. Lots of characters have dreams down there or, you know, taking place there where there are like spirits that are calling out to them. Ned says that every single tomb has a sword laid over it to keep vengeful spirits at bay. So it's like, is there something down there? Is it, does it relate to winter? Does it relate to the White Walkers? Does it relate to the Night King? Could it be what the Night King and the White Walkers are after? It could tie into their motivations for why they're marching south in the first place. And Winterfell might be more key to the show than just being, you know, the Stark home and being very symbolic, but actually be like the big key heading into the end game. So I think there are some convincing parts of that. The question of why Winterfell is named as such, I think is really compelling. I also think that we have sort of assumed all along that the Night King's end goal was King's Landing. But, you know, if the Night King just cares about death, why would he need to go toward the human seat of power? Why would he think about the same? Uh, I think we know that there's going to be some sort of snow that hits the Red Keep symbolically because we've seen that in Visions before, but it might not play out as simply as the Night King is just going to march south towards King's Landing. Maybe Winterfell is his ultimate destination. And I don't know if I completely agree with this theory, but the thing I like about it is that it injects some sort of animating reason for the Night King to do what he's doing. I think I'm less interested in a Night King whose only job is to destroy everything and to be the ultimate evil that the good guys need to battle against. I think George R. R. Martin himself has talked about this, that he himself is less fascinated by the idea. I, I think he has said before in quotations like, J.R.R. Tolkien did this in Lord of the Rings, but everyone who's done it after him has made it sort of a cartoon. So I don't think George R. R. Martin would want his story to be sort of a cartoon. Who knows if this will be different in the books versus the show, but I'm kind of in agreement with the idea that maybe the Crypts of Winterfell get at part of that story. Do you have a conception of what that element might be? Well, that's the thing. It's so unclear. There's so few breadcrumbs that we're not really sure. This is something that I'm hoping Bran Stark can kind of clear up for us if he uses his three-eyed raven magic and, you know, really goes back and sees stuff. But I think something that we often forget and, you know, the show kind of forces us to forget it is that the White Walkers are not dead. We often say, you know, oh, we've seen the dead on the march, whatever. That's referring to the Whites, which have been raised. But we know that the Night King was created from a living person who had a piece of dragon glass stabbed into his chest by the, the children of the forest. It's not out of the ballpark to say that the Night King and the White Walkers, by extension, are living, sentient beings who have like actual motivations. Whether that means that they're going to the crypts of Winterfell because there's, you know, the darkness down there, or the great other down there, uh, that might be a little too far-fetched. But just the idea that they want more than to just bring death to the entire continent of Westeros makes a lot of sense to me. I think that we will find out a lot more about what it is they're really after this season. All right, you have one more theory to give me. Let's see if this one's even better. All right, this one might be slightly more grounded in reality. Uh, Rhaegar's heart might be down there. Um, if you're a show watcher only, you might not know that Rhaegar Targaryen actually really loved music and he had a harp, uh, this like famous 
silver string harp that he loved to play. And the idea is that the only people that are supposed to be buried in the crypts are the lords of Winterfell. And that goes back ages and ages. They, they're they buried there and they get statues in the crypts with a direwolf next to them. And Ned, after Robert's Rebellion, broke tradition by having his brother Brandon Stark and his sister Lyanna Stark buried and given statues in the crypts. So, you know, we see the characters go there and look at those statues. Famously, in the first episode, Robert Brathian goes down to the crypts to pay his respects to Lyanna, and he leaves a feather there that Sansa finds later. So the idea is that Rhaegar's harp could have been taken by Ned North and put in or near her tomb somewhere. I find it really compelling because I think that after John finds out his parentage from Sam and Bran, it probably won't be enough to just tell people, hey, this uh, this weird kid who has visions and this guy with the scrolls know, <laughs> know what's going on here. You're going to need some sort of physical evidence or somebody who is there. And one way that that could happen is if Rhaegar's harp is in Lyanna Stark's tomb, Ned would never have put Rhaegar's harp in the crypts of Winterfell if the story about Rhaegar kidnapping and raping Lyanna were true. He would only do that if they actually had a meaningful relationship. It would basically serve as very strong evidence to this story that Bran and Sam are going to tell is true. I'm really attached to this theory. And I think for even more reasons than you said, it's really interesting, if this theory is true, that Daenerys is going to be there when they make this discovery. Yes. Because Danny never knew her brother, Rhaegar. She yes. has heard stories about him from Barristan Selmy. She heard about how wonderful he was and what a powerful moment that would be for her to see this physical representation of a brother who by all rights was going to be a good king. Danny has been, well, maybe she hasn't been worried, but her advisors have been worried about her turning into the Mad Queen, about her going along the same path as her father. Well, what if we have this reminder of a brother who would have been a much better ruler, was a much better friend and soldier and musician uh, to give her this sort of kick in the right direction, which she admittedly already has, now that she has joined forces and agreed to fight the White Walkers first. But what if, you know, John finds out his parentage and Danny's pretty upset about it, but then she sees as proof this harp and it's about bringing people together. I think that could go a long way towards solving some of these character dilemmas. It'd be really poetic too. I think also helpful for the Northern Lords to know that at least one of the reasons that they might hate the Targaryens isn't actually true and that Rhaegar Targaryen actually was a good guy and could have been a good king. And I think it would really help, you know, solidify the fact that, hey, Danny, only her father was a bad guy, not her brother too, or at least not one of her brothers. So maybe there's hope for her yet. So I think we can both agree we really want this one to happen. Yes. Uh, and I would personally love to see just a dragon arise out of nowhere from the Crypts of Winterfell, yeah, but I'm I admit that too. <laughs> it's probably a little less likely. So the next segment, uh, we're going to give some keys to the game, pick out one player who we think is going to have an important role in this next episode, and give them a few keys. What do we think they need to do to succeed uh, with their ambitions? And I'll go first. I think my key player this game is the teamwork, the duo of Sam and Bran. They have important info that nobody else knows. That gives them power. The end of season seven, we saw them mutually come to the realization of what John's identity, what John's heritage means for the realm. Even behind the scenes, I think they have an important relationship. Isaac Hempstead Wright 
said on the Cast Remembers video released this week that John Bradley, who plays Sam, was his favorite actor to work with. So my three keys, I'll list them out. Tell me what you think of them. First, just tell John, don't let it extend over the whole season. Yeah, tell him soon. Just get it out of the way. Number two, once you tell John, continue to use your abilities to help because Bran has the ability to see everywhere. Sam has all of his books that he took from the Citadel and probably contain more important information. He's learned so much from them already. Uh, Use your abilities for further good to learn about the walkers, figure out maybe further ways to defeat them. Maybe you can learn how to make more Valyrian steel. There has to be something in there when you combine their powers. Number three, include Gilly in your planning. Gilly can be such a huge help. If only Sam would let her talk, do it. Let Gilly help turn the duo into a trio. Go to the library, get some stuff done. I love that you include Gilly in this. I really think that um, the pairing of Sam and Bran is so important because Bran, even though he can log on to the Wikipedia of Westeros, often gets so lost. He gets so far down the rabbit hole that he doesn't really have perspective about what information matters and what doesn't. And I think that Sam who has seen the White Walkers, who is you know grounded in reality, can be that kind of guiding person to, to be like, hey, can you look up X, Y, and Z for me? Because we need to figure this out. That's an important point because Bran, it took a while for him to tell Arya and Sansa like what he was capable he of. Really he really should have given them a heads up about Littlefinger much, much earlier. Yeah, he was just creepy toward them at first. And I understand that he's sort of lost his humanity. You saw that with his interaction with Mira Reed too, when he basically couldn't even say goodbye to the companion who had watched her brother die for him. Mira deserves so much better. <laughs> but I think now that this whole new contingent is coming north and they don't know what Bran's powers are, he could use someone like Sam to speak up for him and to serve as that conduit to all the other people. Who's your key player? My key player is Sansa. As I've kind of hinted at in this episode, I believe that the relationship between the Northern Lords and Sansa and Arya and everybody up in Winterfell and Daenerys and Jon once he bends the knee and everything uh, will be very complicated and very thorny. And I think that Sansa is sort of the person right in the middle who could potentially smooth things over. She can kind of go either way. Uh, I want her to accept Daenerys, but not necessarily bend the knee to her the way that Jon has. You know, don't give up too much ground because you have to keep the northern houses with you and they want to rally around the north. They don't want to see a short time after they've named Jon king in the north everyone who they felt was a leader immediately bending the knee to the Dragon Queen, right? So you gotta have to play both sides a little bit. There's politics in here. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like a presidential ticket where the populace actually is kind of more into the idea of the VP than the actual presidential candidate. If you saw the arc of all the Northern and Vale Lords in season seven, they grew more and more disgruntled with John and thus more and more aligned with Sansa, who really did a pretty masterful job with her politicking and with currying favor with those lords. So I think John returning and pledging himself to Danny could be a turning point, and it'll be up to Sansa to hold that alliance together against the coming threat, even though John is actually the king. Yeah, I think I think that though John is king in the North, I think Sansa is kind of the true leader of the North. I think that she's kind of the key player in making sure that things work out in that region. After all, she was the reason they won the Battle of the Bastards. John was yes. busy charging an entire army by himself. John would have died was, again. Sansa was like, 
maybe maybe we should get some allies first, huh? And John was like, no, 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 I'll, I'll go by myself. I mean, she could have told him that she had the veil in her back pocket, but, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, she won the Battle of the Bastards. She is, you know, truly a key player in this game and I feel like is the key player as far as, like, managing the relationship between these two sides. My second key for her, this relates to the other one, is that, you know, she and Tyrion have a relationship. They obviously, they were married. I don't think anyone recognizes that marriage as being legitimate anymore, so they don't have to worry about getting an annulled or anything like that. But they're both sort of playing similar roles with Jon and Daenerys, respectively, right? Uh, Sansa might not be the hand of the king for Jon, but she is the Lady of Winterfell and is kind of uh, one of his closest advisors. And Tyrion obviously is the hand of the queen for Daenerys. Once Sansa and Tyrion can reunite and put their heads together, them working behind the scenes to make sure that the relationship between Danny and her armies, the Northern Lords and their armies works and is unified is going to be so key. I really think that they're going to be kind of at the forefront of making sure the politics happen and that everything is on the same page. Number three is a smaller one. Uh, I believe that, you know, Sansa has a relationship with Varys. It's a small one. They don't have a ton of interaction throughout the series, but Varys is present when Sansa has to write that letter in King's Landing asking Rob to come bend the knee and saying that Ned is a traitor and everything else. So, you know, similarly, they're going to kind of have to smooth over any lingering issues that they have. I don't think it'll be too hostile or contentious, but it'll be an interesting interaction to see nonetheless. Yeah, remember that letter came up as a key point in season right. seven with Littlefinger planting it so Arya could discover it and try to sow discord. I think with Sansa, there's a really interesting dynamic at play because it's clear how she feels about Cersei. She warns Jon all about her, right? But I wonder how she feels about all of Cersei's old confidants and fellows and advisors because there are some on her side now. Tyrion? Yeah. Even though he didn't you know, have the best relationship with Cersei. He's still a Lannister and she was still forced to marry him. Varys is another. You're going to have Jamie arriving as a third. So I think it's a question of how does the Lady of Winterfell react to that? And that could in turn set the stage for how the rest of the Northern Lords accept those characters too. Yeah, and I think it's worth remembering that, you know, even though Varys seems to tell everybody that he's loyal to the realm, Sansa doesn't know that. And so there could be some suspicions there. Okay, so the final segment we're going to delve into today is predictions. We're each going to offer one prediction that we think will happen and one prediction that we think might not happen, but we really want to see happen. And of course, we've been making some predictions throughout the whole episode, but here are the ones we're really going to attach our names to. Riley, what do you think will happen in this episode? I think John rides Rhaegal in this episode. Whoa! I'm, I'm, I'm 100% convinced that it's happening this season. I think everybody kind of expects it to happen with only six episodes you know they can't push it back so far the other thing i think is that this season is going to be very very dark but i think that you can begin it with kind of a lighter episode begins on an uplifting note with the big finale scene of this episode being john getting on Rhaegal and riding poor Rhaegal hasn't really received much respect thus far we've seen drogon do basically all of the damage we've seen viserion take down the wall Rhaegal's the third banana but, man, wouldn't it be something if John rides Rhaegal in the same episode that they find Rhaegar's harp in the Crypts of Winterfell? Just Ooh. add all of the Rhaegar-related material all at once. Chills. I think, that, I think that's why we expect John to ride Rhaegal, because of the name connection to his father. I really like this idea. Um, right. I'm not so sure it'll happen in this episode, but I would love to see it. 
I think what will happen is that the only satisfied person at the end of episode one will be Cersei. She'll get her soldiers. She'll get her elephants, we can hope. Uh, and she'll be content to sort of wait out what's happening in the North, knowing that she's staunch in her defense of King's Landing. Meanwhile, everyone in the North will be miserable, either preparing for the upcoming battle, dealing with the fallout of John's parental reveal, perhaps, or both. So I think everyone in the North is going to be cold and miserable, and Cersei's going to, you know, maybe she's sipping wine, who knows what she's doing right now with her possible pregnancy, but I think yeah. she'll be by far the most satisfied. Yeah, I think she can put herself into a, a power position in this episode, while many of our other characters will probably be scrambling up North. The next prediction we'll do is not well, not really a prediction, it's what we want to happen. Uh, what I want to happen in this episode, I really want Howland and Mira Reed to return. Well, Mira Reed to return, Howland to show up just, you know, kind of at all in a non-flashback form. Howland Reed is Mira Reed's dad. He was one of Ned Stark's best friends and his bannerman. And he is the only person who walks away from the Tower of Joy other than Ned and Jon Snow. And so that he knows, or potentially knows, Jon Snow's parentage and can be a connection there that says, hey, I was there. I can confirm this story that Bran and Sam are telling. He also maybe has interacted with the children of the forest before. You can read more about this on TheRinger.com. I wrote about it about a month ago. But I love Helen Reed. I'm fascinated by him. And I really think Mira Reed deserved better than the send-off that she got in season seven. So I hope that she's coming back. I don't think it's likely, but give me the reads, man. Bring them. Where I think both a little concerned about how they're going to be able to convince the rest of the realm that John is actually a Targaryen. You just want to throw all the possible evidence out there. You want Bran's yeah. vision. You want Sam's book. You want Howland's first-person account. You want Rhaegar's harp. You just want to throw it all out there. I mean, there's always the complication that John will probably not want other people to know about this. It sort of takes away from the main mission, which is you know destroying the White Walkers and the Night King and everything. I don't think that he has ambitions for the Iron Throne. So he might find out and be like, that's cool, like, don't tell anyone. But if the truth does have to come out and they need to back it up with evidence, Alan Reed is there, Rhaegar's harp maybe is there, and that feels a little more grounded in reality than Bran Stark's visions, for example. That's kind of like his resurrection. Cool, it happened. Don't tell anyone else. Yeah, yeah, he's been keeping that really under wraps, too, in a weird way. So what I want to happen is just to learn more about the White Walkers, either via seeing them do something that isn't just killing or via Sam's books or Brand's visions. I think my biggest overarching storytelling question about season eight isn't just how it will end, but what the White Walkers want. I wrote about this on the site this week. D.B. Weiss, who is one of the showrunners, gave a quote at the end of season six where he basically said, I don't even think of the Night King as a villain because he doesn't have a choice. He's never going to talk. He is just death personified. And I would be fairly disappointed if that's the case. I understand that there are some metaphorical reasons for this, but I think the show is so steeped in shades of gray rather than pure black and white yeah. that it's important that we get something more complex about the White Walkers. And I'd love to see Bran to start to delve into it because he did learn some about their creation. We saw Bran in the Thread Raven's cave learn that the Children of the Forest created the White Walkers. But there's a big gap between them plunging dragon glass into a guy's chest and that guy being this seemingly all-powerful being intent on destroying the world how do you get from point a to point c what's the point b in the middle there i really want brand to start exploring that in this first episode because i think it would raise the stakes of the coming battle of winterfell if we kind of know 
what both sides want separately. Yeah, this is maybe the biggest question mark heading into the entire season for me is that I feel like the Night King needs to have more of a motivation than he's just like a robotic killer. The The themes of the show, the Shades of Grey, as you mentioned, just demand it. And so I really hope we learn more about his motivations this season. And I'm with you. I hope it starts right from the jump. That's it for us on this episode of The Precapables. As always, don't forget to rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions or theories you'd like us to break down next week, write into therecapables at gmail.com. Be sure to read all of our written coverage on the website. I power ranked the show's best villains and wrote about the importance of consequence in season eight. Riley wrote about all the reunions he's anticipating from different character pairings. The whole Ringer staff has been writing daily entries in our Loose End series. And of course, tune in to Talk the Thrones with Mal, Jason, and Chris Ryan going live on Twitter every Sunday night after the episode airs for more instant analysis. Until next time, we'll be waiting in the crypts trying to see if there's really a dragon egg down here. Mm